And as we continue in our worship, we're going to hear from uh, reports of those who have uh, gone to Ecuador. I think today will be our last time hearing from a couple folks. Next week, again, we'll be hearing from Hannah Kim, who'll be uh, uh, going to Asia in a couple weeks uh, to continue in the ministry that the Lord has been uh, doing amongst (laughs) amongst the people there. Um, today we're going to hear from Kenny Cook, a college student, University of Central Florida, and then James Ye. Um, and they're going to share about what the Lord has done in them through their time in, in Ecuador. So let's welcome Kenny, and then James will come after him. Hey, folks. All right. I'm just going to go ahead and read this word for word. That way, more articulate and won't. Well, fumble my words here. All right. Captured by his cross and compelled by the loss of a dear friend, uh, I freely accepted the privilege to go and be a part of his never-ceasing, victorious, and advancing kingdom work in Ecuador. Prior to the trip, I would say that I was feeling rather uh, depleted by the daily grind of life and desperately needed a resurgence of some sort. I suppose I felt like a soldier in the heat of battle and um, in need of some sort of an encouraging sign perhaps a majestic fleet of fighter jets flying over my position or an airdrop package full of chocolate, Ferrero Rocher. However, instead of showing me the simple metaphorical equivalent to these things, God gave me the encouragement I needed and more. He allowed for me to rendezvous with fellow soldiers in Christ who were fighting in the battles of Ecuador, and he reminded me, a fool for forgetting, of his brilliant sovereignty that guarantees victory for all fighting for him. I am always so encouraged, challenged, and strengthened when I meet fellow believers who are faithfully fighting for Christ. In meeting such people, I am always reminded of just how mighty and loving the God I serve is. As I met the faithful workers and warriors of Ecuador, I was immediately captured by the joy and sincerity that resonated from these brothers and sisters. This joy, this sincerity, the security in Christ I saw, it was all comforting to see as I could only imagine what went on in their hearts after the tragedy this past summer. Regardless of how devastating it may have been, they were still there. They were still clinging to truth, still hoping in promises, and still basking in love. However, what stood out and moved me the most was seeing how huge of an impact uh, Tico's story has had in them. Even now, as I think about Tico's story, my poor brain hits overload as I struggle mightily to fathom the deep and global traces of his story. Though sorrowful over the loss... Uh, Tico's story of hope and joy in Christ can be seen in the hearts of those in Ecuador. I was told the people would be reserved and shy, but the people I saw were willingly receptive and lively. It's as if the seemingly unbounded joy of the Tico factor had been planted within each witness of the story. In every laugh and smile of the Ecuadorians, I imagined the laugh and smile of my friend. In fact, in seeing this, couldn't help but laugh and smile myself. It became clearer than ever of how sovereign and far more brilliant our creator, our savior, and our friend God is. While I definitely would have been more than fine with just uh, with seeing just that, God graciously decided to take me to the buffet of blessings. He began to reveal to me the unstoppable force of his sovereignty that is being unleashed through the loss of Tico in Ecuador. I suppose what God is doing in Ecuador can be Compared to a certain extent, uh, to an unexplainable phenomenon known as Tebow time. This mesmerizing phenomenon captured every football fan and even those who have never watched football, albeit Tebow time has faded. We got next season. During the last five minutes of the game, this magical period is full of delightful surprises that all lead to a miraculous Denver Broncos victory. Heck, Football analysts, head coaches, rocket scientists, and even Chuck Norris can't explain the astonishing occurrences of Tebow time. Despite the extremely sorry performance by Tebow through the first three quarters, in a jaw-dropping series of events, fumbles, penalties, motivated defense, missed field goals, careless plays, and interceptions, the stage is set for the eruption of victory led by Tim Tebow. Many describe it as the aligning of the stars that allow the great leader of the Broncos, Tebow, to unleash an impeccable force of sheer determination. That was verbatim right there. (laughs) Although this may be a bit goofy, this is what I see happening in Ecuador. Despite the heavy loss of our dear friend and brother, the stars are amazingly beginning to align. Relationships with those in Ecuador have become more intimate and cemented. A strong trust has been built between us and those in Ecuador. Commitments to serve and love have been made. 
Logistics for long-term missions via GOATS have been laid out. Passion and motivation have and are burning with all involved. And the legacy of Joshua Tico Kim continues to sweepingly spread. As all these momentous occurrences continue to fall into place, I await with excitement and assured expectancy for our humble, faithful, and unstoppable quarterback to lead us all to victory. Like I said before, this illustration is a tad goofy and largely influenced by my infatuation for Tim Tebow. However, this is what, to a certain degree, God is revealing to me. He's beginning to reveal his greater plan for Ecuador, a continuous good work through Tico's life, his true power through the healing and fighting church, and the unleashing of something that shakes the gates of hell. I suppose you could call it Tico time. Returning from this trip, I returned refreshed, reassured, and recommitted to the greatest leader beyond the gridiron. I returned challenged and encouraged by the soldiers passionately and radically fighting alongside me. I returned humbled by the unfathomable brilliance of the sovereign God. I returned reminded of the beautiful privilege that is serving one so faithful, loving, and mighty. So while we may be down by six and on the five-yard line with 95 more yards to go, I take my position on the line with firm confidence, not in myself, but in the one calling the shots, the one pushing us forward, and the one forever victorious. I stand confident in the humble King, Jesus Christ. And so I encourage and implore you, Harvest, to obey the call to go and love, to accept the privilege to be a part of his glory, to continue the legacy of our dear friend Joshua Tico Kim, and to find him to be the one consistent comfort in the lands of suffering and discomfort. Thank you. morning. Uh, I'm really nervous for some reason. I don't know why. Um, uh, my name is James. Uh, I am a member of Harvest. Uh, I'm a member of Thailand House Church, and um, I had the privilege of going to Ecuador uh, for missions this December, and would like to share with you some of the things that God is showing me. Um, I think for all of us on the winter team, um, one of the reasons that we went um, to Ecuador uh, was because of Tico. And um, after what had happened this summer, um, I vowed to myself that I would return to Ecuador no matter what. And it was a promise that I made to Tico's mom the day after we returned, um, not knowing how or uh, I was going to fulfill those uh, promises. Um, uh, our returning to Ecuador was never a certainty. Uh, this, would, this would have been our um, third and last year uh, going to Ecuador um, all the contacts, the missionaries that we had previous, um, the uh, missionary agency that we were working with, the contacts that we had with them uh, were uh, have left or were about to leave. And um, there was um, some thought that uh, we wouldn't return. Um, but uh, as our summer team uh, spent days in Ecuador, um, you know, we could see the fruits of our three years there. Uh, people were uh, accepting, open open to us. Um, they would uh, provide meals for us in their home and uh, just laugh and just uh, share in, in doing work together down in Ecuador. And um, we were so glad for that. Um, but in the back of our minds, we knew that possibly that we wouldn't return. And uh, we didn't know how uh, we could. Uh, and also, uh, after what had happened in Ecuador, as I was coming back, um, I was really uh, concerned about how our two congregations, the Korean congregation and Harvest, would react uh, to what had happened uh, this, uh, this summer. Um, I was afraid that people would start pointing fingers and wanting to blame our team or our church for what had happened. Um, I was afraid that missions to Ecuador would cease because many felt the cost was too much. Um, I even heard, I've even heard of uh, many churches that were deeply hurt by uh, things that have occurred on mission trips. But when, but when we returned, all my fears had disappeared. Uh, I've seen our church become more united than separated. There was never any blaming or pointing fingers, but uh, there was much love and healing and uh, much pointing, but it was towards Christ. I was so happy when our church announced that we would return to Ecuador not only once, but twice a year. 
And I was so blessed to hear that it was uh, Tico's dad who right after his memorial service, as he was uh, hugging uh, fellow brothers and sisters, um, that he was asking people to go uh, to missions to Ecuador. And so in the months leading up to our trip and, and as we gathered to pray uh, and to prepare for our uh, winter missions, um, I was just comforted by these verses that uh, I would like to share with you. It comes from Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Um, I'm going to read uh, the message version. Um, it uh, uh, starts like this. My response is to get down on my knees before the Father, this magnificent Father who parcels out all heaven and earth. I ask him to strengthen you by his spirit, not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength, that Christ will live in you as you open the door and invite him in. And I ask him that with both feet planted firmly on love, you'll be able to take in with all Christians the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love, reach out and experience the breadth, test its length, plumb the depths, rise to the heights, live full lives, full in the fullness of God. God can do anything, you know, far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. He does he does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us, his spirit deeply and gently within us. Glory to God in the church. Glory to God in the Messiah and Jesus. Glory down all the generation. Glory through all millennia. Oh, yes. So if I can just share just three things that um, those verses were helping me through. Um, the first thing was that our mission work and our work in Christ um, has a great price. Um, Paul even alludes to that in the beginning, uh, that even through his sufferings, that he was, um, he was glad to have shared the gospel with the church in Ephesus. And um, during Tico's memorial service down in Ecuador this summer, we were reminded of the, the many, many missionaries that had come to that region who gave up their lives uh, because of malaria and things like that, and how they um, lost their lives to spread the gospel. And it just reminded us of the the great cost that is involved in doing God's work. And I I believe that the very nature of doing something worthwhile requires some kind of cost. And I think that um, as a church, as a congregation, we all share together uh, in the burden of loss. And um, I remember that... uh, a year and a half ago when my brother passed away in the bus accident on his way to missions, um, that that reminder of the heavy cost of doing God's work uh, was brought back into uh, my heart again. Um, but I think uh, the verse clearly says that we don't dwell on, the, on these costs. Um, God gives us um, what Paul writes as a glorious inner strength. And um, I believe that is true for our congregation that God, by the Spirit, gives us inner strength. I see that in uh, Mr. and Mrs. Kim as they try to uh, uh, labor in love. And I see that uh, working in our family um, as we um, are reminded of, again, um, that even though there might be temporary setbacks, um, God allows us with this inner strength uh, to sustain us and even flourish. Uh, the second is the the price that uh, was paid has great rewards. Um, verse 18 describes this reward as an extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Christ's love is the reason for our sacrifice. It was meant for you and me, for the people of Lumbaki, Cabeño, and Sinangue. A love that meets us where we are so that we can reach out and experience the breath, test its length, plumb the depths, rise to its heights. In other words, a love that reaches out to the world, a love that stretches throughout time, a love that comforts us in our darkest times and celebrates with us in our joys and victories. This is what is meant by living full lives. We were able to witness a small glimmer of how this love works when during that memorial service um, in a small church, uh, wooden church, um, it was packed with people that came from the surrounding areas, some of them driving as far as two, three hours. Um, there were five languages spoken there. And, um, you know, there were some people that have never stepped into a church that uh, came and accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And, um, you know, if if I would have to say um, what happened this past summer, um, the cost, um, seeing the little vision of that, what happened there at that church, I would have to say the... Um, it was worth the great uh, price that was paid. Um, the third thing is um, that God was um, 
reminding me was that God can do anything. Um, if you guys ever have a chance to hear to uh, talk to uh, KJ, uh, Mr. Kim, uh, and ask him to share with you how he came about this goat ministry, um, you know, I think he speaks English a lot better than he lets on. Um, and he gets really excited uh, when he talks about goats. Uh, not to, you know, it's, yeah, you just see his light, eyes light up. And uh, if you hear his testimony about all the questions and how, how he ever wondered if this project would ever take off in Ecuador. Um, and then when we, when we got down there, as God was showing him these small signs and uh, orchestrating these people and circumstances to bring about um, the Joshua Project, you know, with raising goats for uh, people in Ecuador. It was, uh, as um, Mr. Kim said, unimaginable. It, it was uh, something that even in his wildest dreams, he could not have thought that this was possible. And so, um, you know, I think that is, as Paul writes, his, his spirit deeply and gently within us. Um, you know, as, as the spirit resides in us, it helps us to, um, to work. It gives us the, the privilege to work alongside of God and what he's doing there, that we're not just some robots that God controls us to um, do his work but that we are able to share in his ministry. Um, and I pray that as a congregation that Christ is deeply and gently in all of us. And as that happens, I'm eager to see what God can do. And I'm sure um, that it will be far more than you and I ever could imagine or guess or request in our wildest dreams. So I want to thank God for helping me keep my promise of going back to Ecuador and not just going back once, but establishing long-term relationships. I really look forward to having this chance uh, to go to missions with my family because of the long-term relationships established, um, to going with Timothy and Jonathan and even my wife, Casey, who is um, kind of challenged by uh, discomforts, but I know that she can do it. Um, I thank you as a congregation for your support and prayers. I know that God loves me. No matter what my circumstances are, I want to fall deeply in love with God. And in response to that love, I want to be what Brendan Manning says, God asks of all of us that we be men and women of prayer, people who live close to God, people for whom God is everything and for whom God is enough. Thanks. Thank you, guys, Uh, Kenny and James, for sharing um, your heart and your story, um, what God's doing um, in you guys with us. I read an, an, an article this week uh, about a uh, Chinese-American. Um, incidentally, his name was Danny Chen. He was a, an army private up in the, um, with the New York City Army. Um, October 3rd last year, he died in, in Afghanistan. And uh, recently, he was, it was in the news because um, a lot of evidence surrounding his death has recently come out. It was uh, ruled a suicide when it happened. But as they're shedding light on it, uh, his family was meeting with uh, military leaders, and, and as they were conducting this investigation, um, they found a lot more to the story. They found that when, as soon as Private Chen enrolled in the Army, he was uh, forced to do push-ups and run sprints. They said very soon this seeming exercise moved into abuse uh, very quickly um, because he was the only Chinese-American in that unit. They would taunt him, they would um, make goat-like noises, and they would call his name. Every day, several people would ask him, are you from China? People would tell him, go back to China. Uh, he would get all of these racial slurs. A week before he died in October, this is in September, one of the sergeants dragged him out of bed, dragged him across gravel, uh, hundreds of yards, had bruises and cuts all over his back and shoulders. His superiors knew about it. Superiors knew about it. Two top-level people knew about it, but they did nothing. On October 3rd, what was ruled an apparent suicide, they found that, again, he was drugged out of, out of bed, dragged out of bed, and he was forced to crawl on gravel while other GIs threw rocks and threw stones at him. At this point, they are no longer considering it a suicide. And when you ask why, why did all this happen? These eight people, eight other GIs, other privates, and other uh, people in that uh, military unit said it was simply because he was different, because he was Chinese, because we didn't like him, 
because he didn't look like us. And as I was reading the story, I was like, I was in parts disgusted, in parts angered, in parts incredulous that here in the year 2011, it was that this kind of stuff can actually happen. I mean, I understand when I was growing up and maybe uh, for some of you who are, are older, maybe when we were growing up in the place you grew up, there was a little bit of ignorance or a little bit of like no one saw people like uh, Asians or people who were different too much. And, and so they made fun of you and, and cast uh, through, throughout questions and out of their ignorance or out of their desire to know and, and quickly these things spiral out of control. But in the year 2011, does this kind of stuff really happen? As I was hearing this, I was reminded of moments in my childhood where I was, I felt like it in, in a lot less, lesser ways. No one threw rocks at me and no one dragged me out of bed. And so I would be experienced physical abuse because of it. But I remember my, my friends and I who were uh, different from the mainstream culture asking ourselves, so how are we supposed to live? Are we supposed to suppress our identity and become just like the rest of the people? Or are we supposed to embrace our identity, smell like the Asians that we are, eat the Asian food in our school cafeterias, and then be shunned by everybody else and be subject to ridicule and scorn? Are we supposed to do something in between? How are we supposed to live in the midst of a world that is so radically different from who I am? Now, that's a question that the first century Christians were asking. Because they were so different in what they valued and what they believed and what they espoused in the, pe- in the person that they followed. So different from the rest of the people uh, that lived in their, mo- in, in their mainstream culture. And the question was, how are we supposed to live? If we become like them, then we'll deny our identity. If we live out who we are, we'll be subject to persecution and abuse. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live in the midst of a culture that goes so against what we know to be true about ourselves and our identity? This question that the first century believers was asking is the question that Peter wrote to address when he wrote the letter of First Peter. For the next uh, few weeks, uh, months, we're going to be spending time looking at this little letter and asking, how are we supposed to live as Christians in the midst of a society that is so different from us, whose values are so different, whose priorities are different, whose allegiance is different, and for us to follow the ways of the world would leave us feeling as if we'd sold out our identity. And yet to live for the sake of our identity means to put ourselves in danger. How are we supposed to live in the midst of a world like this? The series that uh, we're beginning is called The Christian's Guide to the Galaxy because I think in a lot of ways that's what Peter is writing. It's how you Christian, how we Christian are supposed to live in the midst of this galaxy called Earth that can oftentimes be so hostile to the life of Christ within us. Uh, Today I'm going to set the table by just reading two verses and trying to explain it to us by means of creating a framework for where we're going to go for the next uh, few weeks in this series. First Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 here. This is God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. This is the beginning of God's word, this letter that Peter wrote uh, to the scattered strangers. Peter, uh, you know who Peter is. He's the disciple, one of the 12, one of the followers of Jesus Christ. He was the one who Jesus found on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's a fisherman, and Jesus said, follow me, and Peter followed him immediately, dropped everything, followed Jesus. You know, Peter was the one who was a leader of this apostolic band. He was the the, the head honcho of these 12 people. He was the one who had moments of great uh, insight of, of great uh, glory, as well as moments of great shame. He was the one who walked on water for a moment, but then moments later, he was the one who fell into the water. He was the first one to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one of God. And yet moments later, he's the one who thought he was better than Jesus, trying to dictate to Jesus where you ought to and not go. And so Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. This is Peter. He was the same Peter who said, Jesus, I promise if all else fall away, I will go with you to my grave. And yet later that evening, he was the one who three times, not once, not twice, but three times, twice before a servant girl, he was afraid and denied Jesus. And it was the same Peter who was later on the shore 
after Jesus had risen from the dead, had been restored into a right relationship and whom Jesus said, go and and feed my sheep. It would be this Peter who would later give his life for the sake of the gospel. He's writing this letter. And he's writing to these strangers in the world whom he calls strangers in the world and writing to them, telling them, this is how you ought to live as people of God in the midst of a hostile world, a world that is hostile to the people of God, the things of God, the values of God, and the views of God. This is how you're supposed to live. And three things that we see here. And the first thing is this, that we are not at home in this world. We are not at home in this world. He writes here, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's writing to people over a huge, broad uh, geographic span, and he's writing to them, telling them, hey, uh, before you know, before I go into any deeper into this letter, you need to know that you're strangers in the world. Okay, most likely, he's writing to Gentiles, okay, people who are once outside of the people of God, who somewhere along the way, through synagogues, were introduced to the Jewish faith and were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, and then in time became converts to follow and pledge their allegiance to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is who they were. They were Gentiles who were outsiders brought into the people of God. And he's writing to them scattered throughout Asia Minor, and he's writing to them saying, hey, um, I want you to know that you are strangers in the world. Wherever you are, know that you're strangers because you're not at home in this world. Why? In the very opening words of this letter, before he gets into anything else, does he say to them, you are strangers in the world. You're not at home in this world. Why does he say this? Because the first century Christians were experiencing some things that were very difficult some things that were very challenging, and they needed to know, Paul, Peter needed to let them know that where you are is not where your destiny lies. It says you are not at home in this world, and for every child of God, the message is the same, that we are not at home in this world. They're living as followers of Jesus Christ amidst a people who are so diametrically opposed to the way that they live life And the more that our mainstream culture opposes the life of Christ in us, the more we will feel like we're not at home in this world. Let me say that again. The more our world lives in anti-gospel ways, the more we are going to feel like we are aliens and strangers in this world. Increasingly, it ought to be that we feel like I'm not at home in this world. Increasingly, we should have this sense that this world is not my home. Anytime you're a businessman and you go on a business trip and all your buddies go out and they all go and they cheat on their wives and you don't because you follow Christ, you know that you're a stranger. You're not at home in this life. You're a student and all of your friends are cheating and all of your friends are cursing and they're wanting you to do it and they're saying, come on, do it. You'll fit in. And you say no because of Christ. You realize that you're a stranger, that you're not at home in this world. You're a college student. All your buddies are going to party and they all want to get drunk and they all want to hook up with other people. And you say, no, I'm not going to do it because I follow Christ. Then you know that you're not at home in this world, that this world is not our home, that we're just strangers and we're just passing through on our way to our eternal home. We know that we're not at home as, and we increasingly live in this tension. The more our culture, the more our society lives in anti-gospel views, the more we realize that we're not at home in this world anymore. We can't feel at home in this world anymore. What was it about the lives of these Christians What was it about these people that was so different from the Roman Empire? See, the empire looked at these people. They looked at this this, this tiny group at the time. It's about point, it was one one thousandth of a percent of the Roman Empire were Christians. This small band of people. And yet as they're increasing in their their numbers and increasing in uh, in, in their supposed influence, this growing band of people are being looked at with increasing suspicion. Anytime you see a group of people who's different from you, you look at them with suspicion because you don't know them. And what you don't know, you fear. And what you fear, you begin to attack. And that would later happen. So Peter is writing to these people. And at the time that he's writing, there were certain things that were going on and certain rumors that were being spread about these Christians because the people of the Roman Empire didn't understand them. One of the things that they said was, well, they don't worship the emperor. They don't worship the emperor like the rest of the Roman Empire does. They don't, and so obviously uh, they're insurrectionists. Obviously they're insubordinate. They don't follow the ways of the rest of the empire because they worship another god. 
And so that was the first mark against them. But the second thing that people began to see about them was, wow, these people are really strange. They had these gatherings where they would meet up in, in, in homes together. They would close the doors and they would have the supper of their Lord. They would have the Lord's Supper. And during this meal, non-Christians were not allowed to participate in it. And so it was just this group of believers. And so if non-Christians were not involved in it, they're only hearing. What are they hearing? That these, these, these people are gathering together and they're eating the body of Jesus and they're drinking his blood. And so you know how misunderstanding goes and rumors begin to spread. And the more a story gets told, the more it gets twisted. And so they, the Roman Empire began to look at these Christians and say, these people are weird. They're cannibals because they eat the blood and eat the body of their leader. These people are strange. And as the story went on, they began to hear that Christians especially loved eating babies and they especially loved eating Gentiles. And so as the Roman Empire is looking at the, these Christians, they're like, these people are really weird. And then they would hear that brothers and sisters would get together and they would greet each other with a holy kiss. That as men would enter into rooms, they would greet their brothers and greet fellow men with, with holy kisses. And they began to spread rumors that these Christians are very weird. Not only, not only are they cannibals, but they're homosexuals because brothers kiss brothers and sisters kiss sisters. And they're incestuous because brothers and sisters kiss each other. And in the eyes of the Roman Empire, this group of Christians was seen as very, as very strange. And so the Christians were being marginalized. And then the last straw in about 64 AD, at the time, there was this crazy bloodthirsty emperor called Nero, who was in power at the time. He was uh, just passionate about expanding his kingdom and passionate about building and, and creativity. And so he wanted to continue to build. In his lust for building, he decided one day, well, in order to build, I need to have space. And so he set the city of Rome on fire, A.D. 64. You could read this in, in all the history books. Set Rome on fire. And, and the legends say that as Rome burned, Nero played his fiddle in delight as he enjoyed watching the fire rise up. Out of the, out of the provinces of, of, of Rome, I think about 70% was a completely, 30% was completely destroyed. Another 65% was, was uh, just unlivable. And so, as you could tell, people in the empire were completely distraught, not only distraught, but they were upset. Not only were their homes destroyed, but their temples were destroyed, their gods were destroyed, their religion was destroyed. And so they needed somebody to blame. And so Nero, knowing that he didn't want to take the blame for it, he said, well, there's this weird ragtag group of, group of people that others in the empire are already looking at strange. And so he needed a scapegoat, so he blamed the Christians and said it was the Christians who set Rome on fire. And so coupled with this misunderstanding of who they were, along with the fact that the emperor had blamed them for the sacking and ransacking of their city, these Christians began to be persecuted. And one of the worst persecutions, three worst persecutions in the, in the Roman Empire began about 63, 64 AD as Nero blamed these Christians. They took children of Christians and they dressed them up as sheep and they put them out in the fields for wolves to come and devour. Nero took Christian men, doused oil on them, lit them on fire, and had them line the streets of the new Rome so that they might be human torches. And in the midst of this kind of a, an empire, these Christians are despairing, and they're wondering, what are we doing here? Is it even worth it to follow Jesus? Is it even worth it for us to claim the name of Jesus Christ when this is happening to our children, this is happening to our relatives, this is happening to our forefathers, our ancestors, our friends in the faith? Is it worth it to follow Jesus? And Peter's writing, and he says, you need to understand that this world is not your home. That you are not at home in this world. You are strangers in this world. The world doesn't know you. The world doesn't understand you. But stay the course. Because this world is not your home. Now, we don't live probably with this kind of persecution today. I don't know of anybody in our church who's ever been set on fire because of their faith in Christ. I don't know anyone in our church who's experienced anything like that. But if you ask people here, what's your favorite book of the Bible? We might say something like, oh, I like Philippians. because It's all about joy, right? I like the Psalms because it's poetic and it is really cool. I like Proverbs because it gives me wisdom. If you ask people in the Slavic nations, you ask people in Indonesia, 
Okay, Scott McKnight, a commentator, says their favorite book is 1 Peter. In places where persecution really sets in and hits the lives of people, 1 Peter is their favorite book because this meets them where they are. Because they're in that place of suffering. Because they're in the trenches. Their lives are at danger. And they read this book and they find such hope in it. They find the Christian's guide to the galaxy. How am I supposed to live in light of a culture that is so opposed to the life of Jesus Christ in me? And though we don't experience that kind of suffering, anytime we live in a place where the gospel values are being, are being made fun of, where gospel values are being watered down, where other views are presented that live contrary, that are contrary to the life of Christ in us, there will be this tension. And, Paul, and Peter is writing to us and he's saying, you are not at home in this world. This is not where you live, people of God. This is not your hope. This is not your destiny. That even if your life were to be taken from you here, this is not all there is to life. There's more to it because you're not home. And this world is not your home. You're just passing through. You're just a stranger. And the people of God in the first century and the people of God in the 21st century desperately needed to hear this message. But it's not just for that that he writes. The second thing that he writes is that God chose us to be in his family so that we can see glimpses of home. God chose us to be in his family so that we can see glimpses of home. There are three, three things that he uses to describe the people of God here. The first thing that he says is you are elect, okay? God's elect. What in the world does that mean? One of the things that it means that we have to understand is that it means you are not just accepted by God. You have been chosen by God. If you're, if you're a child of God, you're not just accepted. God has chosen you from before the foundation of the world, before your life ever, ever came to be. You have been chosen by God. There's a world of difference. Okay, a lot of times we say, yeah, God accepts you as you are. And that's absolutely true, but that's not where it begins. Okay, when we are the elect of God, it means that you are chosen by God as well. There's a huge difference between simply being accepted and being chosen. Uh, if you, in a, a, next week, we're going to be playing dodgeball and have this dodgeball tournament. Not we, but uh, some of our students are going to be playing dodgeball. If you remember back to the days in your gym class when you were little, whether it's dodgeball or kickball or basketball, you would choose teams, right? You choose the two best people. Uh, one person, okay, you got Bill and you got James, and they're choosing teams, and you got to choose six people on each team. And so here they go, they're choosing these people and the best ones are being chosen. And what, I, I hate doing this because what happens at the end when there's five on each team and there's two people left? Right, these people are just like, oh my gosh, who's it going to be? They're looking at the floor like, ah, you know what? I don't want to play. <laughs> you, guys, you guys go ahead and play. You don't really need six. The court's too small. Right, because no one wants to be the last one there. No one wants to be the last one because when they're the last one, here's what ends up happening. The, the team that's stacked looks at the other team and says, you know what? You guys just take the other two. <laughs> we'll play seven on five. You guys take the other two. And then the, the, the person who has the, the weaker team say, okay, okay, we'll, we'll take them. Okay, when you have two people left and it's just nobody left and you take them on your team, that's accepting them on your team. You didn't choose them. But when you've got first pick and there's everyone out there and you get chosen, there's a world of difference between you being chosen and you simply being the runt of the, of the litter, the leftovers. Okay, we'll take you on our team. Okay, here's, what he, here's what Peter's saying is you haven't just been accepted into God's family, like, okay, leftovers will take them because no one else wants them. He's saying, you have been chosen. That God has chosen you to be part of his family. Do you understand this? Okay, so here, here's why it's so mind-boggling. Because remember, the people that Peter is writing to, it's not Jewish people. It's not people who are always the insiders. It's people who are the, the Gentiles. These were the outsiders. Okay, these were the people that the Jews despised. These were the people that had no hope. These were the people who had to stand at the edge of, of the temple because they couldn't get in. This is who it is. And, and Peter is writing, saying to them, look, you have been chosen by God. You have been chosen to be part of his family. Understand this. This is huge. Right, this is mind-boggling, and this is like shattering kind of news that you have been chosen to be brought into the family of God. Here's why, 
There's two other words that he uses. He calls them strangers, and then he says they're scattered. Any person who's reading this, remember these Gentiles were brought in through the Jewish faith and then into Christianity. As they're hearing this, when you hear the word, when you hear the word stranger, okay, they, their minds automatically go back to times where the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness and they were, they were, they were strangers. And they're thinking back to this group of people. They think back to Abraham, as it says in Hebrews 11, that Abraham wandered as a stranger in the land. And they're thinking back to the, to the people of God. And when he says that they're scattered, this word in Greek, diaspora, refers to the people who are scattered during the time of the exile in Babylon and in Assyria, saying these are the people who've been scattered. And immediately the first thing that these readers are hearing is that these words reserved for the people of God, for the Jewish people, are all of a sudden being reserved for us as well. That you have been brought in. You who were once outsiders have been brought into the inside group and are now part of the family of God. And not just in recent times, but from before the foundation of the world, God chose you. That you are God's elect, scattered strangers, though you may be. You are welcomed in and have always been welcomed in by the plan of God into the family of God. Here's what he's saying. You may be rejected by the world, but it's here in the family of God that you belong. In fact, it's not because you've been rejected that you belong here. It is because you have been elected. That's why you're strangers in the world. It's because you have been elected by God, because you've been chosen by God. That's why the world lives in in, in hatred against you. You're not primarily defined by how the world sees you. You are primarily defined by how God sees you. Saying, this is who you are. You're not just a rejected of the world. You are the chosen of God. And your primary identity is not in how the world sees you, but it's in how God sees you. Here's what it means. That the church of Jesus Christ, that the family of God ought to be the place where the world's rejects come and they find that this is what it means to truly be home. You understand this? Here's what it means. It means that there should be nobody in the family of God who feels like I'm an outsider here. Does that make sense? Because the rejects of the world are the ones who come into the family of God and find that this is what home is all about. This is where it's all about. It's the ones who are broken in the world, the ones who are persecuted by the world, the ones who are scorned by the world, the ones the world makes fun of, that they should be the ones who find a place of dwelling and find a family in the family of God and say, this is where I belong. That's why it's so important. When we have time of greeting in the beginning of our worship service, it's not so that people can move up and people can come in before we start praise. It's not. And understand how valuable this time is. This is where we go and we create a sense where this is home for the outsider. This is home for the broken people. This is home for the rejects of the world. This is where you belong. It shouldn't be that we just go to people we see every day. Oh, my husband, I love you. It's good to see you again. Like I didn't see you 10 minutes ago. We go to the people who are broken. We go to the people who, are, who, are, who, who don't find a place of belonging outside. And this is where they can find a place of belonging. Because you are chosen, elect of God, and this is where you, you may not be at home in the world, but here in the family of God, you begin to realize what a taste of home begins to feel like. So that you want to be part of this. So that you want to be part of the family of God. You know, when we were in, in Ecuador, I, I can't help but think how many times I felt like I was a stranger there. I knew that I was not at home. As soon as you, as soon as you land, you got people talking to you and like, I don't know what you're saying. I don't understand what you're saying. The language we speak is different. So at certain points, it was hopeless for me to communicate and say, I was just talking to these kids in Chinese, not Chinese. (laughs) I was talking to them in Korean. They don't understand me. I don't understand them. So it doesn't matter. Like, it's not my home. And so for five days, I'm just like, okay, you know, whatever. You know, that's cool. Reading these signs, and I can understand some of the stuff. I can understand at the airport, Orlando, okay, this is where our, or wherever it is, Atlanta, this is where our bags are supposed to be. But a lot of the things there, I don't know if we showed pictures of, of chicken feet when we were eat, in the slideshow a couple weeks back, but one of the meals we ate, like chicken like feet, that's what it was, chicken feet. And we're looking, and we're like, oh, my goodness, this looks just like the foot of a chicken. 
Hey, when you eat fried chicken, it looks different, right? But when you eat chicken feet, that's what it, it looks like chicken feet. You're like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I could eat this. I wouldn't eat this at home. And we're realizing we're not at home. We're not at home here. We had to eat some very weird parts of chicken bodies. Very strange stuff. And one, point in, one time in particular, I felt like I was not at home. We went uh, on the way up from Lumbaki to, to back to Quito. We stopped in this place called El Chaco. And there's this restaurant there that we always stop at. And in this city, for, for some particular reason, that day there was this huge carnival that was going on. It was a circus. The Smurfs were there. Do you believe it? The Smurfs were there. There was this carnival that was going on. And it was like everyone, the people were off of work. Kids were out of school. And there's huge stage. And all these kids were up on stage. And they're doing these presentations. And they were singing and doing motions and, and banging their drum and all kinds of stuff like this. And there was food vendors and huge thing. Never seen anything like it. And as soon as we got off the, uh, out of our vehicle and we're walking towards that place, even though there was acts going on on stage, everyone turned around and they were looking at us. And they're talking about us. And I felt, I felt really bad, not for us, but I felt bad for the presentation that's going on because they're doing their best to beat their drums and to sing their songs and no one's looking at them. They're looking at us. <laughs> They're staring at us because we're like a head taller than everybody else. And obviously, we don't look like the rest of the people in Ecuador. And oh, we're just getting this vibe. Like people are, are staring at us. Little children are pointing at us. They're, they're saying things that I don't know what they're saying. I could make out Chino, but I don't know the rest of the things that they're saying. And I began to realize, you know what? This place isn't home. I feel like a real stranger here. And as we went back, the only group of people that didn't make us feel like strangers were the brothers and sisters that were with us the entire time. They weren't staring at us, looking and pointing. No, they were with us. They were walking with us. They were explaining things to us. They were showing them, pointing out different things to us. They were accepting us as their friends and as their family. Because when the rest of the world considers us to be strangers and aliens, when the rest of the world says, you're not at home here, it's the family of God that gives us a glimpse of what home is really supposed to be like. Guys, there, there are folks all over Central Florida and folks all over this room who feel like in this world I don't belong. And they're longing and they're searching for a place where they can belong. And if it's not here in the family of God that they will feel like this is what home is supposed to be like, then where will they ever feel at home? Saying, this is what you have been called to. As God's elect, though you may be strangers in the world, when you come into the church, and when you come into the family of God, this is where you belong. This is where you find your identity. That's the second thing. The last thing that we see then. We are called to obedient witness. We're called to obedient witness. In verse 2, talks about us, it says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. What in the world is he talking about? Okay, here's what he's saying. In, in, in one sense, this is what he's saying. You and I have been called out of the world and into the family of God, the objects of relentless passion and love by God the Father from before you were ever born, not because he saw anything good in you, but simply because he's good and he's loving. He chose you to be part of his family. There you are. You're set in a family. But he's saying, it's not for the purpose that you just stay where you are and be happy and be loved and ride your subway up into heaven, knowing that you've got these promises that God will always love you, that he will never forsake you and never leave you. It's not. Why is it? What is he saying? He's saying, look, this is, this is what it's, this is what I'm trying to say. The reason you, is that me that's doing this? Okay. The reason why you have been brought into the family of God is not so that we can feel this. I I think this is what we sometimes think. Oh, you know what? I'm a Christian. And so I'm happy and life is good. And, and I'm going to read my Christian books and I'm going to read all of these things that, that talk about God's great promises to me, that he'll answer all of my prayers and he'll provide all of my needs. And that's it. And then I'm going to come to church every Sunday. I'm going to feel good. I'm going to get excited. I'm going to be loved by people. And I'm going to die and go to heaven. Saying, look, this is what you're called to. Okay. This is what you're called to says you are called for obedience to Jesus Christ. 
and sprinkling by his blood. You're called to a life of radical obedience because it is your obedience in the midst of a world that is completely against you that will show the world how good our God really is. Okay, do you understand? In the midst of persecution, here's what he's saying. In the midst of an empire that's persecuting you, how will they know that your God is worth it? By your obedient witness and their obedient witness. One one thousandth of one percent of the Roman Empire in 300 years became 54% of the Roman Empire bowing their knee at King Jesus. Why? Because these people, these followers of Jesus said, it is better for me to suffer than it is for me to sin. It is better for me to be persecuted than it is for me to be popular. And they said, I don't care what may come to me, strengthened by the word of God and strengthened by the witness of other believers, strengthened by the knowledge that God has chosen them and that this world is not their home. They said, I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to give my life. And because of that, the Roman Empire was transformed because of the radical, obedient witness of the people of God. Now, it's interesting because he says obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. What is that all about? As you continue to, to, to remember this strain of the Old Testament teaching, back in Exodus, after the, the, the Israelites were, were delivered out of uh, Egypt and they stood before Mount Sinai and the mountain shook in the presence of God, it was there that God gave them the words of the covenant and it was there that uh, ox were killed and blood, half of the blood was sprinkled on the Israelites and they said, whatever you say, Lord, we will obey. We will obey whatever it is that you say. And as the ratifying of that covenant, the rest of the blood was sprinkled over these people. And their honest and their heartfelt desire was that they would follow the commands and the teachings of God. The problem is they never were able to do it. Their desire was only met by frustration. Their desire was only met by this sense of, I want to do it, but for some reason, I I just can't do it. Why? Because in this old covenant that was established, the law was merely written on tablets of stone. And they, the, blood of, the blood of oxen, there was no way that it could do it. There was no way that it could foster this kind of obedience because it could never take away their sins. It could never change their hearts. That's why it says, but obedience to Christ comes by the sprinkling of his blood. What does that mean? Throw it forward. That was the old covenant. You come into the new covenant. Where was this established? At the Lord's Supper, at the Last Supper, Jesus Christ stood before his disciples. Stood before his disciples and he held up a cup representing his blood. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whoever drinks this does this in remembrance of me. Here's what he's saying. The old covenant, the law was written on tablets of stone. But here in the new covenant, the law becomes written on our hearts. And our hearts can be transformed. Our hearts can be changed. Obedience can only come by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Here's what it means. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, no matter how hard you try, you will never be able to obey the commandments of God. Never. Because you're only trying by the strength of your own will. But when Jesus Christ and his blood washes over us and it brings about a transformation, we have a new heart. Finally, we can do it. We can now begin to live because not only do we have a new heart, but we have the empowering, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit living within us. And the power of God avails to the people of God in that place. See, to the degree that we are separated from the world, we will experience that persecution. But in time, to the degree that we're separated and different from the world, that's the degree to which our witness will begin to win over people in a watching world. So many times, the reality, guys, is that the church and the world are so close in how they look that we'd be mistaken for kissing cousins. That in the things that we talk about, in the pleasures that we indulge in, in the things that we do on our weekdays, the things that we do on our weekends, the things that we do in private, the thoughts that we think, no one can tell the difference. Is it a wonder that the witness of the church in our world today is dwindling? 
Because the divorce rate is the same. Because the, the struggles that we have are the same. But every time through the power of God, every time through the spirit of God, every time through the sanctifying blood of Jesus Christ, people rise up, the church rises up, and they say, I choose to follow Christ even in the face of suffering. When in the midst of those places, the hallelujahs begin to ring, every time it happens, this is what the world sees. They see that Jesus Christ is better than the world. That Jesus Christ is better than sin. Every time you choose to follow Christ over following the peer pressure of your friends at school, they see that Jesus is better. Every time you choose to go against the flow of the world, and every time you choose to break those bad habits, every time you deny what other people say to do, every time you reject that position, that, that, that promotion, and you choose to honor God and serve God rather than serve your boss, they see in you that Jesus Christ is better. And all over the world, people are seeing it because of the radical and obedient witness of the people of God. In schools everywhere, the hallelujahs rise up. They rise up in workplaces. They rise up in the business field. They rise up even in prisons where the church is being persecuted because they're seeing in the midst of that place that Jesus Christ is better than the things of this world. And that's when the kingdom of God moves forward. And that's when the people of God get strengthened. That's when the church begins to feel like home, when we begin to realize that this is what we've been called to, to see that Jesus Christ is better than everything else in this world can give to us. At one point, Peter had this same choice as well, didn't he? It was just a few years later, in the midst of this neuronic persecution, that Peter had a choice. You could deny your Savior and live. Or you could go the way of your Savior and die on a cross. And Peter said, Jesus Christ is better to me than whatever this empire could give to me. I would rather cast my lot with the people who are going to their graves now because I know that my home is in heaven than to deny my faith. And he said, I don't want to die in the same way as my Savior. I'm not worthy of that. And so he said, if I die at your hands, then crucify me upside down. Because this Peter who had denied Jesus later would hear that as Jesus hung on the cross, he pronounced over not only the soldiers and the governors and the people who were there, but over your life and my life. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And at the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ took upon himself all of our sin and all of our failure, all of our mistakes and all of our brokenness so that we could see that not only are we forgiven and free, but that now Jesus Christ is better, is greater, is so much more worthy than all of these sins that he died on the cross for. And as we go forward, he's saying, this then is how you ought to live. Live knowing that you're not at home here. Live knowing that you've been brought into the family so that you could see glimpses of the, of, the, of the home that you're called to. And live knowing that you're a witness, an obedient witness, who will bring glory and honor to God the Father and bring life to others as you seek to live as an alien and stranger in this life. Let's pray. Let's just take a, a moment to pray. Our time is short, so let's just pray. One moment, asking the Lord Jesus, become greater in me. May sin become less. May I become less. May you become greater. So that I might proclaim through my actions, my words, and my deeds that you're worthy of everything that I am and everything that I have. And let's pray together for just half a minute, and then we'll continue to worship through our offerings and songs. Father in heaven, we thank you. Thank you that you have called us, that you have chosen us, that we are the elect of God if we have faith in you, Jesus. Thank you that we belong to you forever and ever. No matter what happens in this life, be it persecution or hardship or ridicule, 
We thank you that we can stand in that confident knowledge that this world is not our home and that one day all the years of pain won't seem to matter. When our eyes behold our teacher and our king, we thank you so much for your faithfulness to us. Strengthen us so that our loving surrender to you would become a radical and obedient witness for the sake of those who don't know you. We thank you. We love you because you've chosen us and loved us first. Pray these things in Jesus' name.